This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You suddenly realize that this could be the start of something big. Well, I feel like we've been at the start of something big for quite some time. Trade certainly one of the dominant themes of 2019. And this is an especially big week uh, with even bigger consequences. That is the headline on the terms of trade newsletter put out by our team, led by Sean Donnan. He wrote it. He's with us now from our Washington Bureau. Sean, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're going to get to the end of something at some point soon. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to choose a different song at that point, but we're not there yet. And tell us what we might expect, because it's a big week on at least two trade fronts. Tell us about it. Well, there's three. Uh, so there's there uh, there's, a, there's always one more, right? There's always one more in, in the trade world. There's probably four if we really look hard. Uh, look, at the end of this week on Sunday, we have this big deadline, December 15th. that has a lot of people nervous uh, that if we don't get a deal with China before then, we'll get uh, new tariffs on $160 billion in imports from China, uh, including smartphones and laptops and toys. Uh, although a lot of those toys that you're going to be buying for your kids at Christmas are probably already in the country and won't be hit by those tariffs. Uh, the second piece is uh, we really are very close to a deal between the Trump administration and Democrats to get this new NAFTA, what's now known as the USMCA, uh, through Congress. Uh, President Trump has been speaking with Richard Trumka, the head of uh, the AFL-CIO. Uh, you got to remember that the AFL-CIO for decades has opposed NAFTA and other trade deals. Looks like they may be signing on to this one, which would be really remarkable. Uh, we may get something, uh, some news on that as soon as today, some kind of formal signing ceremony this week. Uh, and the third thing is uh, something that's more structural and about the global trading system, and that is tomorrow will be the last day of work for two of the three judges remaining on the World Trade Organization's right. appellate body. Uh, why do we care about that? Well, that's where uh, the world goes to sort out its trade disputes. And if you don't have an appellate body, and the reason we may, we're going to see those judges go is because the Trump administration is blocking the appointment of new judges. Uh, if you don't have those judges in place, well, it's like uh, shutting down the Supreme Court for global trade, if you will. And there's some real concerns about what that may mean for uh, uh, escalations and trade disputes turning into trade wars down the line. God, I'm glad nothing's going on when it comes to trade. It's uh, so quiet. <laughs> in terms of U.S.-China, what what's happening behind the scenes that all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's 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 do something here. So they're talking every day. Uh, what we're hearing, and we heard it from Sonny Perdue, the Agri Agriculture Secretary today, is they're really trying to nail down the details of Chinese purchases. Uh, the Trump administration wants really detailed commitments from the Chinese on how many soybeans they're going to buy by when, how many pigs, how much beef, uh, etc. The Chinese want, in a funny way, to let the you know let the market decide and say hey, you know, we're not going to commit to buying all these things if we don't need them uh, and or if our private sector uh, doesn't need them. But this really is the, the key element 
of uh, this phase one deal that uh, Donald Trump announced back on October 11th. At the time, he said he had a commitment from the Chinese to get 40 to $50 billion in uh, U.S. farm products uh, bought each year. That would be a doubling of the level seen before the trade war, so that would be significant. Uh, it's also unclear if that's possible, which is part of the reason that the Chinese are uh, haggling to the very end. Look, this is what the end of trade negotiations trade negotiations always look like. Uh, It's opaque. You get rumors. uh, There's ups and downs. And we won't know until the very end uh, if this deal gets actually gets done. The worst result, maybe for those of us who work in the trade world, uh, the worst result we may get is actually a delay that takes us into the new year, which means that you and I could be talking about this come January. Yeah. Merry Christmas all around. Uh, So I do want to ask you, you know, you sort of alluded to the fact that, that, you know, there could be new fronts that open up. You never know. I mean, it wasn't long ago. In fact, it was last week. We were talking about French wine and all the sorts of things going on uh, in Europe. Where could we see more action here? Yeah, so I think Europe's going to be a big theme in 2020. I mean, we saw the president come back from this NATO summit last last week, uh, slightly uh, annoyed with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president. Uh, also, we saw a, a new wave of, of tariffs uh, put in place before he headed over there. He also tweeted out threats to put new steel tariffs on Brazil and Argentina. The trade wars, even if we get a deal with China, aren't going away. And we should also just stress that that deal with China would really be just kind of a pause in the trade wars rather than resolving all the big issues. All right. I have one more important question. I was following you on Twitter as I do over the weekend. It sounds like there was a big bake-off uh, in your house. Who won? Oh, I'm sore about this. Oh, Look, we, like many people, are great fans of the great British baking show yes. in the Don and family. And my 11-year-old daughter on Saturday night challenged me to a bake-off. And we had the first annual Great Don and Bake-Off. <laughs> and I'm afraid my apple skillet cake lost to my 11-year-old daughter's very good, supremely delicious. Wait, what was it? Mine was an apple skillet cake, which was delicious. I, you know, I wish I had a piece for you, but t- to be honest, my 11-year-old daughter's double chocolate strawberry cake oh, yeah. was Score. just so much better. It sounds like Donnan. everybody's a winner, though, if cool. you're living in the Donnan household. All right, Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, and uh, you know, runner-up baker. Always good to catch up with you. So. As we saw on Friday, uh, a lot of folks working for a living. We got a really strong monthly jobs report from the Labor Department for the month of November. Yet our next guest reminds us that we have seen 7 million jobs open for 10 straight months in the United States. The problem, a scarcity of the talent that's in demand. Let's get into this with Becky uh, Frankowitz. She's president of Manpower Group. She joins us on the phone from Chicago. Becky, good to have you here. You know, Jason and I, in prepping for this event, we're like, we want to push this story forward, right? Because we know about the strong jobs report. That was backward looking for November. Tell us about what's to come based on some of the data points that you see. Yeah, so to your point, Friday was a blowout, like a who would have thought moment. A year ago, no one would have guessed the U.S. unemployment could get any lower. No one would have anticipated Friday over 200,000, but it happened. And so you're right. The next question is, you know, what, what's next? What, what do we do going forward? 
And you know, if you think about looking into 2020, companies need to focus on three New Year's resolutions that are going to be fundamental for continued growth. Because right, that's what we're all after is continued economic growth. And the first is, you know, to examine the requirements for a job and ask if they're mandatory or nice to have. You know, the second resolution is understanding um, what what will attract workers. You know, how do you offer more flexible scheduling and solutions? And then finally, hire people who can learn easily and adapt their skills to new in-demand roles because the pace of change in skills is also accelerating. So we have a supply challenge, we have increasing demand, and we have underlying change in terms of skills. And so take us inside some industries, Becky, because all of what you're saying, it feels like plays out slightly differently depending on the industry you're looking at. And and I would start by asking you about retail. That's an area that we talk so much about, you know, retail apocalypse. It's sort of come, it's here. Maybe it's not affecting everyone, but we do know that shoppers are expecting different things and employers are expecting different things from their employees. So how do you sort of account for that? Yeah, so first let's talk about Friday and what we learned about retail. Retail added about 2,000 jobs. And on the surface, you're like, hmm, 2,000 in the grand scheme of things, not a lot. But when you disaggregate the data, what you see is general merchandising had a strong month. And the challenge came in to some of the clothing retailers. And we all know what's happening in some big chains closing some stores. And so retail continues to be strong, of course, on the, on the backs of e-commerce. The Black Friday weekend, we saw about a 6% increase in sales. And as long as consumers are spending, retailers are going to hire. And so that, you know, we have to make sure we're equipping even retail workers with in-demand skills. And I'll give you one data point. The share of tech-related job postings from our major U.S. retailers rose from 10% of their total postings in 2016 to 25% in 2019. So even retail is undergoing the technical revolution. Yeah, no doubt about it. We see it. You know, I want to ask you about a story that's on the Bloomberg. Uh, we've been talking about it. It just broke uh, a little, just as we kicked off our broadcast, about Morgan Stanley cutting about 2% of uh, the firm's workforce, according to those uh, in the know. And what's interesting is the cuts are skewed toward technology and operations divisions. Also, though, executives in sales, trading, and research operations. As Jason, you know, smartly pointed out, you know, technology can cut a lot of different ways. It's a pr- pretty broad basket. But what do you see in terms of the financial community specifically? Yeah, so in the financial community, I was a little surprised by Morgan Stanley's announcement. Um, but what I'll say is, particularly for the managing directors they mentioned and the IT team, you know, there's tremendous opportunity in the market. And so there's about a 1% unemployment in IT in America today. And so if that is the beginning of something we're going to see in the financial sector, we definitely can absorb you know, those skills into the balance of the economy. But honestly, that's the first that we're seeing of it. And so where do you worry the most about either sector wise or geographically, Becky, in terms of, you know, maybe some of this demand softening? Yeah, so, so Jason, I'm actually going to answer the question reverse first. So where do I worry the most, not in demand softening, but in supply challenge? Okay. And I, I would tell you, it's, it's really in IT. And we're doing it, you know, American companies are doing a lot of it to themselves. And so it's that first resolution I talked about with understanding what's, you know, mandatory and what's nice to have. So in IT, in our country today, almost 90% of the IT vacancies list a bachelor's degree in computer science as a requirement, listed as a mandatory. So, of course, people who don't have it are afraid to apply. However, just over 40% of IT workers have one. And so the way that we're listing job openings is actually preventing 
some very qualified people from applying, and we have to evolve that for supply and demand into next year. Um, on the other side, to answer your question, you know, manufacturing is a concern. We saw it bounce back in November. We all know why it bounced back, but the underlying trend is softening. And, you know, while we know the contribution that, that uh, manufacturing makes to GDP, um, it's still meaningful. It's about 8% of American employment. It's right. in manufacturing. It's a meaningful indicator, and, and that's where the concern lies. Well, um, some really great stuff to think about, certainly when it comes to the labor market. Uh, Becky, thank you so much. Becky Frankowitz, she's president of Manpower Group, on the phone from Chicago. Jason, I also loved some of the research she shared, about 76 percent of companies are planning on upskilling their workforce in the new year. And I think that's an important point. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting window into an employment picture that just continues in many ways to defy gravity. So he writes this week about how the new Hong Kong maybe one day be Singapore. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to get into his latest column. Eddie Brown is back with us. He's Bloomberg New Economy editorial director, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I wrote these notes, but what we really want to talk about, you cover Hong Kong, but we want to talk about the World Trade Organization because Sean Donnan, uh, our trade reporter, kind of teed it up for us. Um, this week is a big one for the WTO, Andy. Uh this is huge for the WTO. This, this, this is the beginning of the end, and maybe actually the end of the end of the WTO. And the WTO is the core of what we call the multilateral rules-based trading order, and one of the central pillars of the U.S.-led post-war liberal economic order that also includes the the IMF and the World Bank. So if the WTO goes, this is really a very, very different world that we're looking at. And so how did we get here? You know, it's, it's, uh, of course, a a hugely complicated story. Uh, One thing I would identify is the fact that the WTO just hasn't kept up with the times. Right. So huge areas of global commerce, including e-commerce, that just aren't regulated under WTO rules because it wasn't set up with that in mind. It was pre-e-commerce. To me, though, the biggest, the biggest question is China, and mm. China has changed everything. The WTO also wasn't set up with a system like China's in mind. It essentially assumed a system of free exchange among liberal or free market capitalist economies. I don't know what China's economy is, but it is not a classic, by any stretch of the imagination, a free market capitalist economy. China is playing by a very different set of rules, and the WTO just doesn't know how to accommodate. Now, if, if it was a, if it was a medium-sized African country, nobody would worry very much. But it isn't. It's right. It's China. It's like either the well, number one or two global economy, the world's biggest trader. Andy, who's responsible for it not keeping up to date with the changing world? Well, part of it is the is is the way that the WTO operates through consensus. So, getting a consensus around doing anything in mm. the WTO is has become virtually impossible. So, it's not a flexible, dynamic institution. It's become ossified. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what this ultimately leads to, and you point this out in your piece, is this idea of some really fundamental questions about global economics and liberalism and liberal economic I mean th- this is kind of a, 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 a an even bigger deal than one institution 
So what it looks like now is rule of the jungle, right? Right makes might. So, you know, I mean, in the, the jungle has big cats, and the big cats in the global trading order are the United States, the EU, Japan, and they will essentially carve out space for themselves, relationships for themselves, trading agreements with other countries, and the weaker countries will have to accept what is handed down to them. Might equals right in the new global trading order. So in that new global trading order, where's China in all of this? Because they too have been developing their own relationships, right? So the danger, you know, when when um, when the United States was first of all uh, mooting this idea of the the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it was Obama who said, "Look, you know, if we don't write the rules of the global for global trade, China will." And I think in the absence of a WTO or a much weakened WTO, it is going to be the Chinese trading architecture that is going to set the rules of global commerce for much of the world through its belt and road relationships, through its relationships with smaller countries in Asia, Latin America, Africa. And the United States ends up getting marginalized on global trade. Where's Europe in all of this, though? That's also one of the big trade players. And I just wonder what their relation, how are they kind of managing their relationship with the U.S. and their relationship with China? So look, it's not just the Trump White House that has a problem with China. Right. Everybody has a problem with China. Europe has a problem. Japan has a problem. But they don't all agree on the outcome for, of what this should mean for the WTO. The Europeans w would like to keep the WTO. In fact, they've come up with an alternative arrangement. What's happening tomorrow is essentially the appellate body, the Supreme Court mm -hmm. the, of, 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 of the WTO is going to cease to exist. The Europeans have come up with a sort of a workaround mechanism. They want to keep this organization going um, uh, uh, so you know and and the Chinese of course would love to keep the WTO going you know you, you you look at China's economic development in the years before it joined the WTO it was doing very well then 2001 it gets in global manufacturing pours into China because of, you've eliminated now a huge amount of trading and investment uncertainty and the Chinese economy just rockets after 2001 it has benefited more from multilateral trade than any other country on earth the irony is that it's China itself and its opaque trading practices, industrial practices, state subsidies, and so on, that risks blowing the whole thing up. Right. All right. So let's talk about China from a slightly different angle, which is what's continuing to go on in Hong Kong. We've talked a lot about about the protests with you on this program. Uh, you are putting out there, and this seems to be a theory that is starting to gain some purchase, that Hong Kong may cede its place in the global world of finance and economics to Singapore. Yeah, so the, the big question is, look, you know, if Hong Kong loses its crown as the financial capital of Asia, where does the money go? Now, to be clear, the money is not shipping out right now, right. although a lot of rich people are setting up bank accounts overseas and are thinking about getting out if, if things really go bad. Um, but anyway, there's a debate about, you know, is there an alternative to China? And so people talk about Taiwan. Uh, my colleague David Fickling on Bloomberg Opinion has, has, has looked at the alternatives and Taiwan doesn't really work very well. Japan, uh, Japan is sort of aging and has lost its mojo. Um, you know, Sydney is too far away. 
and then there's Singapore. Why, why Singapore? Well, sure, it's a great place for international business, but Fickling's point, and it's an interesting one, is that Singapore's advantage is that it is surrounded by now Asia's most dynamic economies. Yeah. Vietnam, India, Philippines, all of them growing faster than China. And so maybe we rethink the idea of Singapore as a financial capital, not because of its proximity to China. I mean, it's, in fact, it's, it's about a six-hour flight away from, from Beijing, but because it ends up in the most dynamic part of the global economy. And China, That's in this view, starts fading just as Japan yeah. did. It's such an interesting point and a really uh, nuanced observation, I think, that uh, many people are starting to think a lot more about. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. What a year he has had putting on one of the most influential conferences and keeping us honest on some of the most important issues, certainly, of 2019. Yes, getting a little bit better. This story online at businessweek.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal, it definitely caught our attention about things are getting better for President Trump. Josh Green is national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek on the phone from Washington, D.C. Also with us, Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Hey, Josh, let's kick it off with you. So, you know, it's funny. Jason and I were talking earlier when we kicked off our show and just saying, you almost don't even remember that the impeachment is going on. There's so much other news flow. It's interesting, different times in terms of impeachment hearings, they kind of feel like they've faded to the background. Talk to us a little bit about um, what this all means for the president. Well, sure. I mean, in my column, I step back even further and say, if you go back to where we were just a year ago, I mean, if you if you go back, the Federal Reserve had just hiked for the fourth time. Markets were plummeting. Trump had just sent out an infamous tweet in which he declared himself tariff man, which made a lot of people nervous. And of course, the Mueller report still loomed as something that looked like it could end its presidency. And, you know, here we are looking, you know, in the wake of Friday's blockbuster jobs report, uh, you know, not only do we have an economy that's healthier than a lot of people thought, uh, you know, unemployment is going to be as low on Election Day next year as it has been since the Eisenhower era. And yes, the president is probably going to be impeached, but there's no real evidence that suggests that's hurt his polling numbers. And we have yet to see any indication that any Republican is going to abandon him. So, you know, with the proviso that it's never a nice thing to be impeached, uh, I argue that Trump is actually in better shape to be reelected than a lot of people realize. Josh, the uh, the thing that that kind of leads me um, to tack on a question to the end of that, though, is like th- that ultimately means that this this race almost be- could become his to lose, right? Because these numbers are so out of his control that you know, as long as he doesn't blow himself up, like he's basically you know got this thing in a pretty good place. I think you nailed it. And, and the, 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 the big variable, it seemed to me, is will Trump blow himself up? I mean, one of the things that has helped him get to such a bright place is that the markets have kind of collectively decided to believe that the U.S. and China are probably going to land on some kind of a phase one trade deal. However, that has yet to happen. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks uh, on days when that sentiment has been shaken, the market has fallen quite, quite dramatically. So I point out in the column uh, you know, tariffs, U.S. tariffs are set to jump on Friday on $160 billion worth of Chinese goods. I think right now, most people don't believe that things are moving in that direction. But if, for instance, Trump were to slap on a new round of tariffs or intensify his trade war, then certainly you could see a lot of these rosy economic numbers turn bad. And, you know, when we look to uh, growth next year, 
it's still not great. It's better than what forecasts were showing six months ago. But, you know, this, this is still uh, an economy I think is a bit tenuous. Um, but overall, looking from, from the standpoint of today, and I haven't checked Twitter in the last 10 minutes, so, right. so as far as I know, nothing has changed. But you have historically low unemployment. You have some growth. Uh, you know, impeachment doesn't look like it's going to be the political albatross that a lot of people thought. Trump has clearly survived the Mueller report. And, you know, by and large, Republicans have stuck with him. So I think all things told, the picture has been brightening for him over the last couple of months as we go into an election year. And so, Josh, no one really understands the the base of support uh, as well as you do, you know, given the work that you've done around Steve Bannon and the 2016 election. Help us understand the president's sort of constituency at this point. Has it grown? Has it maintained? How do you characterize it? You know, I think it's maintained, but I think the important way to think about this is is that our historical frame for how we think about presidents running for re-election is fundamentally broken, right? Trump is historically unpopular compared to other recent presidents. And yet, you know, I argue in this column that his political superpower is really his ability to polarize the electorate. And he's polarized it in such a way that he isn't winning a lot of support from Democrats or independents, but he has kept the Republican Party and, and more importantly, the Republican base with him throughout this impeachment process. And certainly from the standpoint of today, I think has a better than 50-50 chance of being reelected. So, you know, through all of the, the endless drama of the last two and a half, three years, he's main, managed to maintain a loyalty that other Republican presidents, you know, somebody like George H.W. Bush, who ran for reelection and not a great economy, weren't able to do. And that stands him in pretty good stead, I think, to be reelected. And so how that precedent... Um it, it should also uh, bode well for Republicans who are also going to be campaigning. Uh, how are the Republican in the Republican camp, how are they talking about these numbers uh, and, and having so much wind at their back? I just got well, about 20 I, seconds. I, I, th- I think that, you know, they are certainly encouraged by the positives in the economy. I think they're also encouraged to see that it doesn't look like there's going to be any kind of a death blow from Trump coming out of impeachment. They know that Trump is the popular Republican leading the ticket, and as long as he's there, they've probably got a better chance to win in the most hardcore Republican areas. All right, we're going to leave it there. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from D.C., Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And we should also point out Mike Bloomberg also seeking the Democratic presidential nomination. He's the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, and it is time for the drive to the close. Kirk Hartman here with us, President and Global Chief Investment Officer for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They're looking out 
They're looking after, I should say, $495 billion. That's almost half a trillion dollars. Joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. All right, Kirk. So a busy day, it feels like, on the market today. From a headline perspective, lighter volume, as our Doug Krisner has been reminding us. But what is the market most concerned about on a week where it feels like we're going to be very trade-driven? Well, I think this market wants to go up. I mean, the economy is very strong, and um, things look very positive. Um, to your point, there's a lot of geopolitical headwinds. You know, you've got the Brexit vote coming up. You've got the uh, potential uh, tariff deadline on um, December 15th. Um, you've got the Fed meeting. You've got the uh, ECB meeting. So um, a lot of people are waiting to see what happens there. So um you know, it'll be interesting to see. But to your point, I think today is just very calm. So it's interesting, too, that you say the more, uh, just sending a look at some of the notes you sent over, the more the U.S. equity markets go up now, the less that they can go up next year. Um, is that just based on we've had such a run up? But I mean, most folks would say, what is it, over the last year or two years? We really haven't moved that much. Well, if you think about uh, earnings per share and multiples, uh, this year, earnings were good but not great in the 166, 167 per share for the S&P. Next year is projected to go to 175. You put a multiple on that, and we're pretty close to being there. So uh, my point is I think the market is uh, priced for um, a very good outcome, and it's discounted a lot of the uh, earnings expectations for next year. Um, which I think is not a bad assumption. I think the, the question is, given a market – uh, especially the S&P up 25% and the bond market up uh, 10%, uh, you know, how much more can we go? It's obviously, uh, you know, a great condition. And so, Kirk, what do you worry the most about then? You know, with this time last year, we sort of didn't know what was about to hit us come the holidays with all of that volatility. And this Fed meeting, you know, was the meeting that yeah. sort of set it all off uh, in many ways. Is the Fed a concern? Is trade, as you, you know, you mentioned we talked about geopolitical uh, elements out there as well. Uh, what, what's, what's the thing you're worried most about? Well, I think the thing that I'm most concerned about is leverage in the system. And I don't think people are talking about that enough. There's a lot of leverage in the system, a lot of debt. Um, everyone knows that the central banks are uh, spending a lot of money and stimulating uh, the economy. But you wonder at some point, when does that end? Um, it's a great time to borrow. Uh, coverage ratios are very good because rates are low. But um, if rates start to go up, um, leverage ratios and coverage ratios and those kind of things can turn around. So, so far, so good. Leverage is your friend when it's your friend, but the other way it can hurt you. So, okay, so let's think about next year then. How would you position yourself to kind of get ready for the environment that we may have in 2020 based on your assumptions? Well, I think you want to have one foot in, one foot out, meaning um, I think you want to uh, be in the equity markets, but um, you can see from my notes I'm leaning more towards dividend yield. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning more to the financials. Uh, arguably, small caps may be a bit behind. I think in, and we'll catch up, I think, and they are, I think in the bond market, um, you've got to be very careful here about uh, interest rates and duration risks. So I think you have to stay short. So um, I, would, I would put it this way. Uh, you want to be positive, but you want to be careful. Still feel pretty good about the consumer as we head into the holidays? The consumer's in good shape. And again, I think a lot of that is, um, you know, good uh, confidence levels. And again, uh, 
a continuation of the low rate environment. So that's helping everyone. Um, and the uh, U.S. consumer just continues to power along here. And, um, you know, again, you just have to wonder how long that can, can continue. But um, it's gone on for a long time. I do wonder, too, Kirk, how politics plays into all of this. Of course, tomorrow, uh, next year, excuse me, is an election year, presidential election year. And we do certainly have an administration, specifically a president who watches the financial markets, no doubt about it. And I do wonder whether you think about how that might impact what we get next year in terms of a trading environment. Well, I think next year is going to be a very um, rough year politically. Obviously, um, you know, you have a lot of uh, disagreements in terms of the direction of policy and um, and the economy. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But I I think what you can conclude from it is probably not a lot gets done next year um, in terms of uh, legislation. And um, I think the market thinks that as long as uh, the trade war uh, kind of uh, bumps along. There's some kind of phase one deal. And along, as long as there's not any big uh, geopolitical shock, like a really bad outcome of Brexit or anything like that, or a Middle East um, a flare-up, that I think the market uh, thinks things will be okay. All right. We're going to leave it there. Kirk Hartman is president and global chief investment officer of Wells Fargo Asset Management. They look after about $495 billion. He joined us on the phone from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.